out of the darkness. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. Jeremiah 17, 13, 14, and 15. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are the one I praise. Sleepless nights, no appetite. A grave face reflected in the mirror. These define me during the year of depression. Some melancholics have called it the dark night of the soul. I call it the closest thing to a, a living death. Some days I curl into a fetal position, unable and unwilling to move. Other days I seem to function making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for my son, but no laughter resonated in my kitchen life and food were tasteless. Sunsets had been my favorite time of the day, but now during the dark year, I could no longer enjoy the oranges and golds of Kansas dusk. Sunset meant the night was coming and I dreaded the loneliness Everyone else slept while I rocked myself in a corner of the bathroom. Was I crazy? A clinical depression, the doctor said. Chemicals out of whack. No one knows how it starts or how it ends. My usual routines didn't happen. Music held no joy. The piano sat in the corner of the living room, its ivory keys mocking me. No songs echo through my house. I fill my journal with dark and discouraging words. Sad, apathy, useless. Nothing in my life seemed to matter, and I hated feeling so worthless. I grieved for my little son. I couldn't play with him or read his books. Every crayon in my box was gray. I tried to pray, but God was silent. Friends came in and out to visit, but no one had a solution. Others prayed for me, but nothing happened. The days seemed 35 hours long. The nights endless. Hours stretched into months and still no relief. I beg God to let me die. Then, one day, I sat at my desk hoping some creativity would filter into my lostness. I longed to write again, to make paragraphs that made sense, to live within my fictional characters. I closed my eyes and pleaded with God to help me. Please, Please, I can't take it anymore. I don't know what to do. Out of my darkness came a light that beckoned me into the living room. I traveled out of body and saw God standing beside a Christmas tree. His face was indiscernible. His body an opaque vision, although I could see no features. 
I just knew he was God. But more, more and more exciting than his appearance was the large gold box he held out to me. The fog in my brain lifted as I focused on the white gift tag fastened to a shimmering bowl. It read, Help! Then I was back at my desk, awake and sharply alert, afraid to breathe. I closed my eyes and waited. A presence stood behind me, Jesus. His graceful carpenter hands touched my head, and a pulse of power reached inside my shattered brain. Like a slow-moving syrup, that warmth of his touch spread from my head to the tips of my toes. Damaged synapses snapped back into place. Dead emotions felt alive, surging through personality and will. I felt that miraculous glow in every tissue of my being, filled me with the incredible gift of healing. I sat at my desk for hours, repeating, thank you, thank you, in every language I knew. Gracias, gracias. Arigato. The darkness had retreated, and in its place was the light of sanity. I wanted to leave. I wanted to live and be a good mommy again. I touched my jeans and felt each denim thread. My stomach roll, pent-up tears released the poison of condemnation. No longer worthless, I felt love with the divine intimacy. My Lord, I stretched my fingers towards the computer and wrote a complete sentence. God is my healer. Amen. From R.J. Testman, story number 41. Story number 42 from Chicken Soap of the Soul. Malachi Surprise. Malachi, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Bring the whole tide into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessings that you will not have room enough for it. I received a notice in the mail from the bank. Make at least one mortgage payment by the next Monday or foreclosure proceedings will be initiated. I had no idea what to do. My wife, Joanne, had recently quit her job as a registered nurse to be a stay-at-home mother to our two young sons, Michael and Danny. We had met with our pastor, and he reaffirmed our decision for Joanne to concentrate on raising the boys. There may be financial problems, but the Lord will provide, he has said. Taking care of children is not a hassle, as some parents seem to think. It is a ministry to the Lord. 
I had a good job, but not an executive position. It was during the late 70s, and the economy was a mess. Double-digit inflation, double-digit interest rates, long lines to purchase gasoline. I did not earn enough money from my salary to support a family of four. All that week, I grappled with the problems. It burrowed into my mind like a mole. You made a big mistake. You are going to lose your home. I spent most of my time worrying. I knew the Bible advice. Be anxious about nothing. But no matter how hard I tried to climb the hill of faith, I kept slipping back into the mire of apprehension. The situation seemed hopeless. I could not come up with the money or even a clue on how to get it. Within a few days, legal action would be initiated that would take away my family's home. Friday was payday, but most of that money had to be committed to necessities such as food for my family. The rest did not constitute nearly enough to make a mortgage payment. I told no one, not the pastor, not the associate pastor, nor anyone else at the church about the financial plight of my family as I struggled with a new problem. As a Bible-believing Christian, I felt I was my duty to, to God to contribute a tithe of my income to his church. But suppose I skip a week, I could make up for it some other time. If I kept the tithe money in my wallet, I'd be that much closer to being able to make the mortgage payment. I turned in my Bible to the book of Malachi and read, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. My decision was made. On Sunday morning, I placed my tithe check in the offering plate. Then I went right back to worrying. I worried through the rest of the morning. I worried all afternoon. In the evening, Joanne and I returned for another church service, and I managed to worry all the way through it. After the evening service, the associate pastor came up to me with a smile in his face and handed me an envelope. The Lord told me to give you this, he said, and turned and walked away. And the envelope was a check for precisely the amount needed for the mortgage payment. I don't know how the associate pastor became informed of my problem or how he decided he should do something about it. But I do know this. I tied and God kept his promise by pouring out a blessing. From that Sunday, 35 years ago, to the present time, my family has not encountered serious financial difficulties of any kind. From David Her- Heron, number 43, Chicken Soup of the Soul, Define Death. 1 Corinthians 2.5, 
so that your fate might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. 1 Corinthians 2.5, again, so that your fate may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. I was working a 16-hour shift one Saturday in ICU. It was my turn to take the next admission. When I got the assignment and report, I knew it was going to be an emotional evening. Mr. Smith, a 76-year-old gentleman, had suffered a massive stroke confirmed by a CT scan. He arrived in the unit around 3 p.m. I learned that he had been an active man with a wife, four adult children, and several grandchildren. He was very close to his family, even though three of his children lived in different states. Mrs. Smith was an avid gardener and kept busy all hours of the day. When Mr. Smith suffered his stroke, he had a large amount of bleeding into the brain, and this resulted in a respiratory arrest. The family was given the news that his condition was grave. He had seizures almost continuously. His heart rate and blood pressure were unstable. He could not live through the night. His wife asked us to do whatever we need to keep him alive until her three children could come say goodbye. One daughter lived close by, and she remained at her father's side. Mrs. Smith called a son in Delaware, a daughter in New Jersey, and another son in Virginia. Two hours later, I was hanging the fifth intravenous medication to stabilize Mr. Smith's rhythm and blood pressure. When Mrs. Smith asked me to pray with her, that her husband would awaken and be well. But if he had to die, that he would live long enough for his children to arrive. How long before everyone gets here, I ask? About seven hours. I pray with her, God, please stabilize Mr. Smith's blood pressure and heart rate so he can live through the night. About 10 minutes after our prayer, his heart rate dropped to 40, then 30, and then down to no rhythm at all. The cardiac arrest team was called. They worked on Mr. Smith for 20 minutes because of the bleeding into his brain. It was determined that even if we could get his heart rhythm back to normal, Mr. Smith would never awaken from a coma. After talking with Mrs. Smith, the emergency doctor called the code, stopped all the resuscitation measures, and pronounced Mr. Smith dead. Because he was my patient, it was my responsibility to remove all the linen, lens and tubes and bathe him. Everyone had left the room, and as I removed the intravenous lines and tubes, I prayed again for him to get a rhythm back to live long enough for his children to come to say the goodbyes. Normally, the procedure is to remove the EKJ lead and turn the monitor off. For some reason, I had not removed the leads yet, but I turned off the monitor in the room and I was beginning to remove the breathing tube. The other nurses came running in. What are you doing? One asked. 
Turning around, I told her I was taking out the lines and cleaning Mr. Smith after his death. Turning around, I told her I was taking out the lines and cleaning out Mr. Smith after his death. Turning around, I told her I was taking out the lines and cleaning Mr. Smith after his death. One nurse flipped on the monitor at the bedside. I looked up at it and got chills. Mr. Smith had a heartbeat again as I watched the rate increase from 30 to about 50. It's just the drug effect, said one of the nurses. We all know this happens sometimes. It doesn't mean anything. When I, but when I checked for a pulse, I felt one in his neck. I turned the ventilator back on to give him oxygen. As we, as we stood in the room watching the monitor, we all realized that Mr. Smith, who had been pronounced dead a few minutes before, had a heartbeat. He was alive again. At 10.30 p.m., all four of his children walked into the room. Mrs. Smith smiled at me as we acknowledged that God had answered our prayers. A few hours later, Mr. Smith died, his family at his side having said their goodbyes. He didn't get well and make it out of the hospital, but God still performed a miracle. Mr. Smith lived for eight hours after being pronounced dead. Kim D. Armstrong. Forty-four. Bell of Truth. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Matthew nineteen twenty six. 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I was 19 years old. <clears throat> alone in his studio apartment in Kansas City. It was the Christmas season and self-pity had gotten the best of me. With no job and the rent barely paid, all I had was a box of cereal, a carton of milk, $5 in my bank account, and a single $1 bill in my purse. Earlier that year, I made a fatal decision. I was forced to quit college due to lack of money. So I packed up two suitcases and got on a bus with only $50 in my pocket. My parents were getting a divorce. I had no financial support. My temporary minimum wage job had ended. I was new to town, alone, and friendliness. Friendless. So here I was in Kansas, sitting on my murphy bed, staring out the window. I began to think, 
No one really cares if I live or die. I could be lying in the gutter somewhere and it wouldn't make a difference. I thought I get to get out of here, get out of this room before I do something I regret. My thoughts. I buttoned up my old lime green coat. I had once been part of my new college wardrobe. Now it had holes in the elbows and was torn on the shoulder where white stuffing poked out. I walked down the five flights of stairs with the dollar in my pocket. I opened the door to bitter cold. The icy wind smacked me in the face, making my eyes tear. I began to walk and walk. I had no destination. I just knew I had to get out of this apartment. Eventually, I came to a park with benches and a fountain where I could sit, cry, and pray. With my eyes closed, begging God for help, his wisdom, a sign, anything, I heard a voice. A man was speaking to me. Was it a sign? I opened my eyes to find a homeless drunk sitting next to me and asking me for a date. I headed back towards the apartment. By now, the sky had opened up, delivering a combination of rain, sleet, and snow. Without a hat or umbrella, my tattered coat soaked up the freezing rain like a sponge, and wet hair covered my face. Walking past fancy stores that were beautifully decorated for the Christmas season, I felt embarrassed by my Little match girl appearance. A few steps later, I stood outside a small coffee shop, gazing the window here. Even in the coffee shop, women were wearing furs and beautiful clothes. What would I feel like to be sitting in a chatting with friends over a nice warm cup of coffee? Looking good, watching the dreary weather outside. I wonder if my one dollar could buy me a cup of tea. Then it occurred to me that with tax and tip, I couldn't afford the tea. I continue homeward. Cold and wet, I ask myself, could life get it any more miserable? It was then I came upon a Salvation Army woman ringing the bell in front of a red bucket. Well, I thought for myself, you got your arms and legs, your eyesight, and your health, so you're a lot luckier than a lot of these folks the Salvation Army people are trying to help. So I reached in my pocket and gave my last dollar to this Salvation Army. Back in my apartment, I opened my mailbox to find one envelope, my bank statement. I already knew what it said, but when I opened it to file it away, I noticed something wrong on the statement. It did not show the expected $5 balance, but now reflected a $105 balance. Huh, I always knew exactly what I had in my account, balanced to the penny. Something was wrong. I wasn't about to spend money that was not mine. I called the bank. I wasn't taking any chances. The bank employee said it was indeed my money, but I knew better. Donning the tattered wet green coat, 
I marched back out into the cold. My bank happened to be directly across the street from the fountain I had sat at crying just a couple hours before. I walked in. May I see the bank manager, please? I'm sure I look an awful sight. Well-dressed people were staring at this cold ragmuffin demanding that the bank officer remove the mistaken overage. While he went into back office to check out the air, I waited patiently in a leather chair that squeaked when I shifted in the seat. Water dripping from my hair upon his return, he looked puzzled and sat down, scratching his head. I can't make any sense of it, he said. But it is indeed your money. That's impossible. I know what I had to the penny and this appear out of nowhere. He said he understood my concern because it had not appeared on previous statements. Our records indicate that a deposit was made into your account last, last July and we just now caught it. That's why it appears on your bank statement for the first time in December. But it's definitely your money and you need not worry that we'll be asking for it back. When money is tight, a person keeps track of each and every cent. I knew without question that I never make such a deposit back in July, but I couldn't convince him. I walk home, thank God for the extra money, which I used for a discount plane ticket to visit family for Christmas. My spirits healed as I shared the holy holiday with them. A few months later, I was told someone about the mysterious appearance of $100. Hadn't you just given your last dollar to charity, she asked. Well, yes. So don't you see, she replied, you were rewarded a hundredfold. The tiny hairs went up on my arms and a chill moved up my back. I called this the bell of truth ringing my spine. I had just experienced a blessing. A Christmas miracle. The story was turned in by Morgan Hill. Amen. Saved by the hand of God. Jeremiah 1.8 Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. And will rescue you, declares the Lord. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah one eight. My good friend Rena and her daughter Nikki are still trying to make sense of what happened to Nikki when she almost died one day in the Himalayas. Rena had planned to accompany her 80-year-old mother on a spiritual pilgrimage to Badrinath in the Himalayas. But a severe bout of sciatica prevented her from making the journey. Instead, her 27-year-old daughter, Nikki, a professor of botany, went with her, went with her grandmother. Grandmother and granddaughter set off together, one to offer devotions to the Lord 
and the other to pick up some interesting plant samples in the pristine mountains. They were part of a tour group that hired a bus for the pilgrims and made arrangements for rest, stops, and food along the way. The monsoons were venting their full fury that August. Rains in the hill accompanied blustery winds and a damp chill. Rena's mother was laid low with a severe fever and excruciating body ache. Not wanting to hold up for the rest of the group, the tour organizer arranged for Nikki and her grandma to stay in a rather remote rest house while the others continued their arduous climb. A faithful houseboy, Ramu, would cook, clean, and look after their comfort. Grandma was distraught to come all this way and not to see the face of the Lord. She moaned her emotion anguish as her as great as her physical one. Don't worry, Granny, God is everywhere. If you really wish, you can see him, for he is in every tree, every flower, and blade of grass. Nikki comforted her. The view from the rest house was lovely, and both spent hours on the open balcony gazing at the slopes clad thickly with tall cedars, pines, and poplars. But after two days, Nikki began to get restless. Even though the rain still came down in misty gusts, she decided to go for a walk on the mountain tracks. Be careful, Granny warned, as Nikki wrapped herself in a woolen scarf and set off. The path was steep and slippery, but she was careful as she picked up several plants. I'll go back and look them up, she thought. As she turned to go back, and she espied a truly rare beauty of a flower. It was a little way down a steep slope, but a faint track made her think it was possible to reach it. She started down, carefully placing her feet. One wrong step, and she'll be hurtling down the steep precipice precipice a thousand feet below. She reached the flower, plucked it triumphantly, and cautiously started up on her way. That is when disaster struck. The ground under her feet started to slip. The rains had loosened the soil. Nikki had heard of avalanches of mud and realized that she was stuck in the beginning of one. She tried to clutch at something but there was not a tree, not a branch, not even a sapling. As her hands grouped desperately at the soil, she scooped up handfuls of grass. She tried to dig her feet into the soft earth to stop her slipping down, but it was in vain. She tried to call out for help, or her throat was dry with fear, and only a faint croak came out. Bacow, save me, she begged in her mind even as she began to slide down inexorably. Suddenly, a warm hand grasped hers. Here, madam, hold my hand, said a voice above her. Peering down with arms stretched, was Ramu, the boy from the rest house. 
he climbed down with the nimble sure-footedness of hill people and gingerly pulled her up. His hands are so warm, she thought, as he helped her to her feet. She thanked him profusely, then headed off again. When Nikki entered the rest house, Grandma looked at her strained face and asked in concern, What happened, my child? Nikki recounted the entire incident, ending with, If Rama hadn't come along, I would be lying at the bottom of the valley by now. But that is impossible, said Granny. Ramu has been here with me all along, building up the fire and regaling me with folk tales. Then Ramu stepped in with a steaming lunch. I was keeping my E.G. company and only went to the kitchen when I saw you coming in. Granny and Nikki looked at each other in stunned wonder. Didn't you say that God is everywhere? asked Granny softly. The story is by Mita Banerjee in the book Chicken Soup for the Soul, A Book of Miracles. Number 46. You're Not Alone is our next story. Genesis twenty six twenty four. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Genesis twenty six twenty four. Again, that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I was all alone. I stared out the kitchen window. The bright sunshine revealed the streaks I left when cleaning it. It doesn't matter, I mutter. No one is going to see it. I try to concentrate on my weekend chores. Usually keeping busy while would help me get over my depression and bitterness. I tackled everything that needed to be done with a vengeance, but nothing was going right. The vacuum cleaner shorted out, the washer wouldn't spin, and there were piles of laundry to do. I headed for the garage. I'll do yard work, working outside in the fresh air. Always suited me and gave me time to think. I cranked it and cranked the old lawnmower. I needed a new one, but couldn't afford it now. I could barely manage the bills. I had married my childhood sweetheart, and we had been blessed with three beautiful daughters. Now, after 10 years of marriage, it was over. After work, I spent all my spare time with my little girls, going to picnics, playing games, reading together, talking and listening as I tried to ease their pain over the divorce. That was all forgotten this weekend. They could hardly wait to leave. Their father and his girlfriend would pick them up and take them out to Six Flags Amusement Park 
They were so excited about going, I couldn't blame them. I couldn't afford to take them to places like that. But it hurt seeing them so anxious to go. Didn't all the time I spent with them mean anything to them? Of course it did, I muttered as the mower finally coughed and started. You should be ashamed of yourself for feeling this way when the girls will have so much fun. They need to be with their father. I mused. I was filled with bitterness and hatred as I thought of him. He could never find time to do anything with them before. Even when the girls pleaded with him, he was too busy. He said he had to work. I kicked the ball away from the mower, pretending it was him. I viciously mowed down anything in my path, weeds and flowers both. All the while, I kept thinking, I'm all alone and no one loves me. I went into the house exhausted. I tried to do the rest of my weekend chores, but I couldn't find the energy. At supper time, I was so tired and upset to eat. It was Saturday evening and I was alone. I felt so sorry for myself. I burst into tears and threw myself face down on the couch. In my pain and misery, I cried out, Oh God, help me. I'm all alone and no one cares. No one loves me. The sobs shook my whole body as I laid on the couch, shaking, crying, and whispering over and over, Please help me. Please help me. Please. I froze as I felt an arm go around my shoulders. My sobs quieted. As I laid on the couch with the weight of an arm around me, I heard a whisper in my ear. You're not alone. I'll always be with you. I love you and always will. I was so stunned I couldn't move for a few seconds. I slowly sat up and looked about the room, shaking, and tried to comprehend what had happened. I could still feel the warmth where the arm had been around my shoulders, and I knew I had not imagined the whisper. Then it hit me. I wasn't alone. I could feel my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the room with me. Sitting there on the couch, I felt so loved and protected. He loved me. He loved me and cared about me, cared enough to tell me so. The rest of the weekend, I went about in a daze, overwhelmed at what had taken place. Jesus had told me he loved me. He promised to never leave me and to always be with me. I cried some more and more. This time, there were tears of joy. My life had changed that night. The bitterness and hatred I felt was gone. No longer did I fret about being alone or unloved. The girls would leave me many times to go with their father. But now I was happy they were getting to spend time with him. I still struggled to work and make me ends meet and to find time to be a single parent. I still had problems to deal with. But I had someone there helping me all the way. 
Anytime I would slip into fretting or feeling sorry for myself, I closed my eyes and think back to that evening. I could feel his arm around my shoulders and heard the soft voice saying, I love you. You're not alone. And I'll always be with you. And he has. From Pat Cain. Again, Jesus says to us, I love you. You're not alone. And I'll always be with you. Amen. That was story number 46 from Chicken Soup from the Soul. Reading from Streams in the Desert. Commit your way to the Lord. Psalms 37.5 Talk to God about whatever may be pressuring you and then commit your entire matter into His hands. Do this so that you will be free from the confusion, conflicts, and cares that fill the world today. In fact, any time you are preparing to do something, undergoing some trial, or simply pursuing your normal business, tell the Father about it. Acquaint Him with it. Yes, even burden Him with it. And you will have put the concerns and cares on the, of the matter behind you. From that point forward, exercise quick, sweet diligence in your work, recognizing your dependence on Him to carry the matter for you. Commit your cares and yourself with them, as one burden to your God. That was from R. Langton. Awesome, awesome. If you notice, King David did the same thing. He would throw the matter upon God's like a good friend, getting it out of his heart and his concerns, and getting it on there. He would say something, Lord, the supply and your promise are not here yet. But it will come if we should have it. We shall praise you and thank you when it comes. It will surely come. Amen. Reading from the book Streams in the Desert. Welcome to today's podcast. Various readings for our spiritual hunger to be satisfied. In Jesus' name, be you the blessed. Here we go. Wait patiently for the Lord. Wait. God never is late. Your growing plans are in your Father's holding. And only wait His grand divine unfolding. Then wait. Wait. Patiently wait. Trust. Hopefully trust that God will adjust your tangled life. And from His dark concealings, will bring his will in all its bright revealings. Then trust, trust, hopefully trust. Rest, peacefully rest on your Savior's hands. Breathe in, in his ear, your sacred high ambitions. And he will bring it forth in blessed fruition. Then rest, rest. Peacefully rest by Mercy A. Gladwin. Amen. Thank you, Mercy. Now, from our next reading is from Morning by Morning Devotional. 
And it starts out with the, the scripture, Daniel 12, 12. Blessed is the one who waits. Blessed is the one who waits. Waiting may seem like an easy thing to do, but it is a discipline that a Christian soldier does not learn without years of training. Marching and drills are much easier for God's warriors than standing still. There are times of indecision and confusion when even the most willing person who eagerly desires to serve the Lord does not know what direction to take. So what should you do when you find yourself in this situation? Should you allow yourself to be overcome with despair? Should you turn your back in cowardice or in fear or rush ahead in ignorance? No, you should simply wait. But wait in prayer. Call upon God and plead your case before Him, telling Him of your difficulty and reminding Him of His promise to help. Wait in faith. Express your unwavering confidence in Him and believe that even if He keeps you waiting until midnight, He will come at the right time to fulfill His vision for you. Wait in quiet patience. Never complain about what you believe to be the cause of your problems, as the children of Israel did against Moses. Accept your situation exactly as it is, and then simply place it with your whole heart into the hands of your covenant God. And while removing any self-will, say to him, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I do not know what to do, and I am in great need. But I will wait until you divide the flood before me or drive back my enemies. I will wait even if you keep me here many days, for my heart is fixed on you alone. Dear Lord, and my spirit will wait for you with full confidence that you will still be my joy and my salvation. For you have been my refuge and a strong tower against the foe. Wait patiently again. Wait. God is never late. Your building plans are in your Father's hands, and only wait His grand divine unfolding. Then wait. Wait. Patiently wait. Trust. Hopefully trust that God will adjust your tangled life and from his dark concealings will bring his will in all its bright revealings. Then trust, trust, hopefully trust. Rest, peacefully rest on your Savior's hands. Breathe into his ear your sacred high ambitions and he will bring it forth in blessed fruition, then rest, rest, peacefully rest.